You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Okay, everyone, I think we'll make a start as people filter in. So uh, welcome to this session of the uh, Academic Skills Circle. Um, today, we're joined by uh, Tim Peters and Sandhya Perhuja. Um, and I'd like to uh, acknowledge that I'm joining you from Nam, Melbourne, on uh, the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation, where I live and work. And I'd like to pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging, acknowledge that they are keepers of law and country, and extend a warm welcome to Indigenous participants. And to emphasise um, the significance of this acknowledgement to our practice and conduct as scholars. So I'll pass over now to uh, Sandhya to uh, begin. Thank you. Thank you, Kathleen, and welcome everybody on my behalf as well. Uh, I think most of you know that I'm Sandhya Bahuja and I used to be the Director of the Institute for International Law and the Humanities, but now that has been passed to the competent hands of my dear colleague, Professor Margaret Young. And so now I am the Director of the Laureate Program in Global Corporations and International Law. And it gives me great pleasure to have this conversation with Tim Peters today, who has been a visitor in our program. Tim, I think many of you will know, is an Associate Professor, I uh, guess, uh, in Law and Humanities and Law and Culture and Corporate Law and Legal Theory at the University of the Sunshine Coast. And he's the holder of a DECRA and he also is the president of the Law, Literature and Humanities Association, I think, at last glance, um, and well-versed in questions around law and humanities and successful grant getting. So we thought we would have a conversation today um, between me and Tim about the idea of applying for grants in the law and humanities specifically. So we're going to address that question particularly, and we are going to talk to each other for about half an hour, I think, and then we will open the floor to questions. So please um, prepare your questions and don't hesitate to ask them. So it can be an interactive session. But let me just start by uh, asking you, Tim, you're, you're an important figure in Australian law and humanities. Can you tell us a little bit about why you think law and humanities is important as a subdisciplinary field? Um, thank you. And thank you very much for having me. It's been wonderful to be part um, of the, the program and be a visitor. And it's great to be a part of this session today. Um, so on the, on the question of why is law and humanities important, I, I guess I can respond in three ways. And I will respond in three ways. Um, first, if the question is a question about justifying why law and humanity is, is important, and sometimes I think we have this sense that we do need to justify it, my response is kind of dogmatic um, and really precise. It's important because it is. Um, how could it not be, you know, the understanding of law as a, a mode of interpreting, ordering and being in the world? Um, it is important. Um, and I think the the points when we're asked to justify um, is this important um, are problematic in themselves. And so my response is simply, it is important. Um, however, if the question is more about explaining why um, or how law and humanities is important, um, I think that's something that we we can and, and do do. Um, and I think it's because we take seriously the fact that law itself um, is and has been understood for, uh, you know, 
centuries as a, as a humanities. Um, and in, in taking that seriously, we also take seriously the way that law itself is performed, it's written, it's read, it's seen, it's inhabited and expressed um, as a social and cultural enterprise. Um, and therefore, as law and humanities scholars, we're deeply concerned with the way in which law produces and generates meaning um, and the questions of, of ethos and responsibility that goes along with that process of, of meaning making. So, you know, law and humanities is about, you know, it's about law. Um, it's about law as story, as image, as art, as objects, as history, um, as tree, as forest, as river. It's it's about law as plural um, and encompassing encompassing multiple laws. Um, so I, I think there's there's that aspect about about you know what it is to be a law and humanities scholar and the taking seriously of you know the cultural form or the historical form or the or the artifact or the experience as of law as as jurisprudential. That's but great. if we then yeah, so then my third response though, which kind of comes back to the context of what we're discussing today, which is applying for grants. And in the context of applying for grants, um, I wouldn't say anything of what I just said in, in the grant. It grounds um, and sustains what I would say in a grant application. Um, and I think it's important that we sort of, um, you know, are serious about the fact that what we do is really, really important. Um, so in the context of the grant, um, it's more, it's not, it's not about, um, you know, so much articulating why law and humanities is important, but more about, you know, the framing of the questions that we might be asking um, and the, the what's, what sort of challenge or problem or particular thing in the world um, the grant is trying to address or the grant project is trying to address. And where law and humanities is really important is the types of questions it puts forward and it asks. Um, and I think that's where, you know, the, the framing of law and humanities in the context of grants is really useful. It's not upfront necessarily, it's more about we're asking some deeper questions about you know how do we frame or how are we framing or what concepts are framing the problems we're trying to look at or address. Mm, that's great. I I like the distinction you draw between justification and explanation, um, because I think it's very important in a grant not to sound defensive about the things that we do, but to have a fully elaborated sense in our own minds of about why we do those things. And I think you're absolutely right that if we train ourselves into explaining clearly what sorts of questions are made possible by the approaches that we take up and having a strong sense of why those sorts of questions are necessary in any given instant, that that's really helpful in the grant process. So let us turn then to the grant process and can you tell us something about your most recent grant application? Um, sure. So I'll preface this with saying that I haven't had um, lots of grant um, experience, but I have been successful on one particular um, large grant, um, which is an ARC DECRA, uh, which has the title of New Approaches to Corporate Legality, Neoliberal Governance, Corporate Sovereignty and Corporate Economic um, Activity. And I've been working on that for the last few years and I'm coming to the, to the end of that grant project um, at the moment. Um, yeah. So, um, but, but, uh, what was there more? More to the question? Um, no, no. Well, so that doesn't sound on its face like a law and humanities grant. Uh, can you um, tell us in what sense it is a law and humanities grant? Um, yes. So, yeah, you're right. And on the face of it, it sounds and you know, grant writing is 
kind of a genre. It's speaking to a particular audience. Um, and the the grant is sort of wanting to engage and think about and address or work out how we can address some of the problems of big corporations. Um, but the, the law and humanities component comes in in terms of the way in which those questions um, are posed in, in the grant. Um, and so really it's it's the the methods um, and kind of uh, framing questions that make it a law and humanities project. Um, and a number of you might have heard me speak about you know theological genealogies of the corporation and technology um, in some of the seminars that I've given lately. If you read my grant application, um, I think there might be might be one sentence that refers to religion or theology, um, but um, I, I sort of had you know a number of people read it, um, and a colleague who you know knew some of the the technical material in it better than I did, and we had a great conversation about it. He gave me some great feedback. At the end, I made the comment, but this is all all theology, and he kind of went, "Where where is that?" And I said, "Well, it's in the way in which I think about this material um, is through a, a deep engagement with the field of political theology." But in in crafting the grant, I'm then actually translating that into a different context um, and for a different different audience that won't understand that that material. That's really interesting because in a way you're doing, from what I can hear, you're doing two things. One is to actually use your own erudition in the field of theology and political theology to implicitly carry the structural form of the question which produces its own sense without you having to say anything. And this reminds me a little bit of uh, Jenny Beard, Jennifer Beard's marvellous book, The Political Economy of Desire, which was grounded in a, a doctoral thesis that had an enormous amount of psychoanalytic theory in it. But when it was when it became a book, most of the psychoanalytic theory was taken out as an explicit reference point, but left in as the unspoken logic that structured the whole thing, which was really, really interesting. Um, but you're also saying that the more straightforward point is that the law and humanities uh, experience or your yourself as a law and humanities scholar comes in at the level of methodology. And I think mm -hmm. that's actually really useful because a lot of grants in law don't have good methodology. And so law and humanities scholars have a huge advantage in that regard if we can articulate that clearly. Yeah, I think that's 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 really important. So I might ask you some questions, Sun, if that's okay. Um, so you've been successful in quite a number of grants. Um, you know, if you could think back about all the different applications, which would you find you know, which did you learn the most from um, in your successes? Well, I think it's important to note that every successful grant applier has a very large number of unsuccessful grants in the drawer, and I am no exception to that. And in fact, this laureate grant that I have recently been awarded was my third go at applying for that laureate grant. And so two lessons, I mean, there are specific lessons I learned, which I'll say something about in a second, but just as a matter of um, fortitude, I think it's really important not to get discouraged by a rejection and just not take it personally and say, okay, what can I learn from this? What can I repurpose this for? Let me put it in somewhere else. Let me put it in again. And I always do that. And I have, I think I've gotten very good at not taking the no personally and not feeling like anything's wasted. And so repurposing stuff. And sometimes I put in multiple things at the same time 
and one will fail and one will succeed. And so it's a really, it's really important not to invest everything in one, in one application or one grant body or whatever, and don't get discouraged. I guess what the, the three applications I did for the laureate were really, really instructive. So the message that um, I would like to convey is genre, 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 which is writing a grant application is learning to write in a very particular genre and you will not get it right the first time. And sometimes putting it in and failing is the only way you'll really hold your hand to the fire. So you know how if you want to practice something, you practice it, but you don't practice it hard enough. It's actually, you actually have to do the thing and not succeed and then do it again. Like my supervisor used to say, nothing focuses the mind like being hanged in the morning. So the, um, the, so what I learned across the three applications was in the first application, I was much, much too detailed about the really hairy theoretical difficulties that my project entailed. And what that meant was, so the project is about global corporations, but it's also about the history of international law and the plural histories of rival forms of laws of encounter and where the corporation and the state play in that and the church and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, it's very complicated. And you can imagine that any grant assessors reading that who don't already know anything about what I'm talking about were just completely lost. Like when I look back at it now, it's, I'm like, oh my God, how could I have thought that anyone would be able to understand this? But the second thing I learned from that particular application was the tonal question, because not only did I make it too difficult to understand, um, I also set it up as a critique of everything that it wasn't. And therefore I kept saying, well, those people have done this, but that's wrong. And those people have done this and they've failed to take this into account. And those people have done this, but they miss this. And of course, who does it get sent to for assessment? But all of those people, right? So their names are going to come up in the sound cloud, on the word cloud. So I learned that you should never construct an application in the genre of critique because your assessors will be the people that you're knocking over. And so tonally, I made a big shift towards saying, actually, there are many people who are concerned with this question. Look at all these amazing scholars who are trying to solve the same thing that I'm trying. They've got their way. I've got my way. Their ways are useful if you want to do these things. And my ways are useful if you want to do these things. And by the way, the thing I want to do is really, really important. So that was a big lesson. And then the second version, because I got rejected and I assumed I got rejected because not because actually I didn't learn the lesson fast enough that the problem was lack of clarity. I thought it was because it wasn't applied enough. So then in the second version, I made all of these statements about policy relevance and stuff. And that was completely unconvincing to a reader because as one of my friends said to me afterwards, he said, this reads like the right person for the wrong application because it also didn't build on anything I really knew how to do. And it, and actually, ironically, when the scientists read it, because the laureate is assessed by a multidisciplinary panel, they couldn't actually see the research. They just saw a problem and a policy thing, and there was no research in the middle, which they were right. Like that, the, bit, 
that I actually wanted to do wasn't there articulated in the grant. So I think what I learned then from that was don't assume that what the funding body wants is policy relevance. That's a really interesting point because we often, I think, you know, when we're trying to figure out how we, you know, craft projects that's going to be funded, we often think it's got to be that sort of solution. Yeah. And I, and so what I learned from that was that in order to make my research relevant and pass the pub test is not to say I have the solution, but that I have an approach to a problem that has so far eluded solution. So, and I noticed in your DECRA application, Tim, which was excellent, um, that you did a really similar thing that I did, which is to say, there are lots of putative solutions to this problem, but none of them are sticking. And therefore, it suggests to me that we need to rethink the foundations. And of course, rethinking the foundations is what law and humanities scholars are precisely suited to in whatever form we do that in. And so I think that's the way to open the door to why a historical or theoretical or philosophical inquiry is needed precisely as a form of engagement with a real world problem. And what's really interesting about that is it comes back to like that question of justification or explanation of why is law and humanities important. And you just you just did it without even needing to speak to, you know, questions of discipline. You just you actually present it um, implicitly in what you're what you're doing. Yeah, I think so. Um, I guess um, I, just let me ask you one question then. I mean, I think that significance that arguing for the that finding ways to say that the relevance of the research is to allow us to think about something more deeply is exactly the most useful. Well, the most useful strategy I've found for bringing critical, historical, literary, theoretical work to bear on. And I've and I've had three ARC grants now which have precisely done that on the Cold War, populism, and now the corporation. And so I'm getting better at doing that as well, which is good. But let me ask you then, Tim, one of the things that we often talk about in this skills circle um, is not, is we try to convey a sense that we're not just interested in skills in a sort of neoliberal university sense. We're not, we don't want to just build robots with capabilities. We want to think holistically about the role of the scholar and how we cultivate an ethos in ourselves and in those we supervise and teach. Can you say something about how the grant process relates to us and the ethos that um, our community is interested in cultivating. Do you think it's a complete anomaly to the to that ethos, or is there something else you could say? That's that's a that's a really interesting question, and I, I often talk about like why I embarked on the process of of writing my decorate application in in ways that could be interpreted as, as neoliberal, liberal, right? Our, our, our neoliberal masters say we need to get grants. Okay, how do we do that? I'm going to try and figure out how to do that. Um, and that is kind of partly what I did. But underlying that was more actually about a commitment to being a scholar and an academic and going, how do how do I use this process, not so much to get funding, but to 
improve my ability to think about research projects, to think about the research I want to do, to articulate that for different audiences, um, and essentially how to become a better academic. And um, so I, I, I didn't put my DECRA application in with the significant expectation that I would get it and, you know, success rates of 15%. So that's, you know, not an unreasonable position, but I did it to go, how do I, you know, one, work out how to articulate a project in this type of format, but two, how do I improve my own thinking about the work I'm trying to do? Mm. Um, and I put the, the application in and kind of went, I, I, I could do that again. I think I could do it better um, each time. Uh, and that was really, really useful. And the same thing when when I got the assessor reports and I had three positive ones and a negative one, um, at which point in time you kind of think, well, you think you tend to need all positive reports. I didn't think I was going to be successful, but I still took the rejoinder process seriously to go, okay, I'm going to you know, do the best I can to respond and use that as a process about improving my thinking about the work I'm trying to do. Yeah. Um, and I think that's about making it a scholarly and academic task, given that's the kind of the core of what it is uh, I think we, we should be doing as scholars and academics. Yeah, I think that's right. And I found the process really clarifying to to my own thinking about my project. And I was mindful when I was writing applications that involved resources that I wanted to write applications for things that I wanted to work on anyway. And yes. And I would have in my head an idea of, well, if I don't get it, how will I do this project anyway? And what bits, it, you sort of think of it in a kind of modular way. So, you know, in a laureate, there's a thousand different pieces of a puzzle, but I knew that if I didn't get it, there was one piece of the puzzle that I really wanted to work on anyway, which is the history of the company-state relation in the company-state international law relation. And that even without all of the, other things that could be that could occupy me for a lot of time anyway so it was really useful to clarify my thinking around that hmm. something we... I really liked, well, yeah, uh, just the last point like something I really liked um, in reading your um, application um, was again the point in time when you see you know the the theoretical or the law and humanities, components come into play um, and you have this line about you know making something visible that's not currently visible um, as well as the you know the investigating description and analysis of a new phenomena um, and developing the the resources that are need to intervene in response to it like I think there's you know they're, they're really um, important components of what we do as scholars but they speak directly to you know the, the significance of it and, and its contribution so. I think um, you can't always be a purist, though, as you rightly pointed out. So for those of you who don't know, Tim read my application in preparation for this conversation, and I read his DECRA application, and he said to me, oh, the question of transnational sovereignty, do you, how do you, do you really think like that? And I said, no, I don't, I, because the question of sovereignty itself would need to be parochialized, and it's not an abstract form of political authority, it's a jurisdictional form, but you can already hear from my response that trying to get that across as well as everything else was too hard, and therefore I decided to take up a language of transnational corporate sovereignty, 
as a communicative strategy to convey at least the gist of what I was trying to say, but not worry too much about the fact that when I actually write the book, that won't be the language that I take up. But you can imagine how could I convey to assessors in a nine-page project statement that I also wanted to upset theories of sovereignty. I mean, you just, and I tried in the first application and that's why I was absolutely hallucinatory. So I think you have to be willing to say, I I can I can translate some context some concepts and some ideas into more vernacular things that I would actually bracket in that in the work itself. Yeah. Should, Kathleen, do you should we open the floor to questions? We've yeah, got a, a good half an hour so that I'm sure Tim and I'll think of lots of things to say once people start asking their questions as well. Oh, that, that's a great idea. Um, and I actually wanted to pick up on what you were just saying, so I might um, take the moment to do that. I I wanted to just ask you both more about um, just this effort of translation <laughs> and the sort of tension between um, honesty in describing your methodology particularly, how to make a law and humanities methodology legible in this kind of genre and, you know, you mentioned clear articulation, you mentioned translation. So how would you explain a particular analytic that you want to take up, um, you know, an approach that you want to take up that is, you know, clear and precise? So, you know, you want to be honest as far as is practical um, or comprehensible, but, um, you know, in this sort of um, idea of um, explaining rather than justifying. But nonetheless, honesty requires a level of clarity that is sometimes incomprehensible, as you've just described, Sun. So I just wondered if you could say a bit more about trying to make those methodologies legible. When we speak to each other as law and humanities scholars, um, there's a level of understanding that's assumed and it's not the case across disciplines. So just, I'm going to jump in there, Tim, because I think that thinking about it as honesty might be getting you into unnecessarily difficult territory because nobody's saying be dishonest. But imagine if you're trying to teach a class to first years and you you won't adopt the same kinds of language and structure that you would if you were talking to Peter Fitzpatrick or, you know, your PhD compatriots. So I think what it's, it's better not to worry about honest, dishonest, but to think about communication and clarity. And so if you were to say, uh, I want to rely on literature or something, you can think of ways to convey that, that people who don't know what you're talking about already can understand. And that if that requires levels of simplification that in the actual work you know you will have to avoid, it doesn't matter. That's precisely what I learned between number one and number three, that I was trying to be honest or I was imagining like, so the reader in my head was probably Sean McVeigh, like what would he think? But of course, that's the wrong audience, right? I Hillary Charlesworth said to me, I don't know if I should attribute, somebody said to me that when you think of the laureate panel, you have to think of a physicist with a passing interest in world affairs. And so trying to explain in that 
context what it might mean to think of sovereignty as a form of jurisdiction. They don't even know what international law is, let alone the idea of the critique of the critique of the critique of the critique. Like, so I would say, don't worry about honesty, focus on clarity and communication and be frank about what you're going to do as a general proposition, but don't get too hung up on the accuracy of all of the theoretical terminology because the person who reads your application won't know everything that you know and it'll just make it hard for them to understand. Yeah, that's so true. I love that. A physicist with a passing interest. (laughs) (laughs) I'll keep that in mind. (laughs) Well, I mean, it depends how things are assessed, right? So you always should find out who your grant's going to be assessed by. So an ARC discovery or DECRA gets assessed by an expert assessor and the score of the expert assessor will determine its outcome. Some applications like Lever Humes or uh, Laureates get assessed by a disciplinary assessor, but then decided upon by a non-disciplinary assessor. And you need to know that because the decision maker is the one you really need to speak to. So you need to satisfy the assessor, but speak to the to speak to the decider. So you should always find out who's making the decision in any context. I'd like to invite people to ask. Uh, here we have a question, Marika. Please go ahead. Thanks, everyone. Um, really appreciate the comments, India and Tim, and also Kathleen for the question. So my question kind of builds on that because it seems to me from the few events that I've been to so far, it's kind of like audience who you're writing for is all important. And that seems a little bit different from the, for you, Tim, for the DECRA than Sundia for the, for the laureate um, program. Um, And so I guess the question, so I would be looking to apply for a DECRA. So I'm kind of interested in this remark you made about the three kind of glowing reports and then the one that wasn't so glowing. (laughs) Um, And I guess if you're working across disciplines a little bit, how do you sort of, in the best way possible, cover all those bases, I suppose, in terms of the audience um, that you're writing for. And I get that, you know, it's some of those things you've already mentioned, like method and framing questions and, um, you know, thinking about, the, you know, for an educated audience, but maybe not for a totally specialist audience, which is slightly different for the decor, obviously, because it is kind of specialised. Um, but then it might not be interdisciplinary in the way that we're working in. So yeah, just some some more thoughts and comments and advice on that. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so so the 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 DECRA process, the um, assessment process is they do go to to expert assessors, and then they go to they have general carriage by somebody who is broadly in the field, but won't be necessarily a specific expert. Um, the other thing is that you do get to define um in part your disciplines um so you put in the the for codes um and what portion of the project goes to that which is part of how they, they find um, assessors as well as there's a, a word cloud that's generated based on your, your project so uh, i guess part of it is is thinking about how you're framing your project um and thinking about if it's interdisciplinary um who do you actually want to read it so um I, almost all my work is interdisciplinary, but I often comment that I almost always publish in law journals. I don't, and, and so I'm always kind of aware that my audience is generally going to be legal scholars, even though I'm doing interdisciplinary work. 
And if that's the case, that's that's kind of what you want. You want to make sure that the project is going to be assessed in that sort of fashion. If you're doing, if you want it to be assessed by other other scholars, then you need to frame it uh, uh, for those. So, yeah, you can still flag it as interdisciplinary, and that's that's great. But think about like which discipline you want want assessing it, um, and make sure you sort of speak to that to that 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 audience. Um, yeah, does that help? That that does help. I uh, could you say just a few more words about the bad report that you had, and yeah. like, I, and whether you thought that was maybe someone that wasn't. Um, uh, that, well, I mean, I know you don't know who that was, but like a bit about who you think that person might have been in terms of discipline. Yeah, no, I think, um, and and one of the challenges, you know, so I, I'm I'm a, a cultural legal scholar in this project. I've done some work on on critical corporate law, and this project was moving more into that. Um, I think. Part of it was that they they weren't quite getting the way I was framing the importance of of what I was doing in the project. Now that's always I mean there's always a, the risk of that um, no matter how good you you write it. Not saying that mine was yeah perfect, but um, part of the rejoinder process is the ability to respond to that, um, and that's a interesting genre of writing in its own. You get seven hundred words to respond to these four reports or three or four reports. And um, my deputy vice chancellor of research, who uh, is a biologist, um, basically said his approach is you want to start with the assumption that you got the best reports possible and make your rejoinder look like that's what you got and then work your way back from there in terms of only responding to what you absolutely have to. Um, now, I, I didn't entirely follow that, but part of it was going, OK, yes, they're sort of saying something, but it's actually different to what I'm doing. Um, and sort of distinguishing what they're picking up versus what the project is is doing and clarifying um, what what you're doing. Um, and, and essentially that that rejoinder is then going to the general carriers of the the um, assessment um, um, and that they use that to go, has this you know mitigated any of the questions that the expert um, assessors um, addressed and therefore it should be in the the portion that gets funded versus the portion that doesn't get funded. So it's 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 and Sunday said before it's knowing who's making that decision and that that rejoinder is speaking to that audience in particular. Can I say something about rejoinders? Yeah. Um, so the other thing is when you get the assessors' reports you, in the context of the Australian Research Council, and uh, I think also I think this was my experience in the arts and the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council, you don't get a score. You only get the report. So you could have a report that's written by quite a tetchy person or in a relatively critical tone that actually gave you quite a good mark, as it were. And, you know, I mean, all of us know as teachers that you can write quite a, a critical response to an essay, but then say, well, actually, overall, I give it an H1. And so that's where tone, 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 tone becomes really important because you will make that score sound less good by sounding defensive in response. And so what you really have to do is say, thank you. The question, uh, the question invites me to clarify this. This is what I'm going to do. So take out every single adjective once you've written your first draft and don't have any don't have any defensiveness of tone in there. It will not help you. It doesn't matter what the report says and reply. If anybody raises a question, treat it all as 
uh, an attempt to make your project clearer and as a generous request for further and better particulars and respond accordingly. So that would be my suggestion. Hmm. Is uh, we have a question in the chat um, around um, particular language. April. I think Ben also had his hand up ages ago and then he got bumped. Yeah. Are you bumping him further? <laughs> okay. You can bump me again. It's no worries. <laughs> A primary primary criterion being to explain or um, set out the groundbreaking nature of the research proposal, which is not the meaning of which is not explained or it's not defined. Um, Tim or Sandia, would you like to <laughs> suggest how this person might respond to that? Do you want to go first, Tim, or do you want me to go first? Well, isn't isn't that a similar criteria in the laureate, like? Um... Well, it's funny. I mean, it's like when you apply for promotion, they want you to say you're an eminent scholar and an eminent this. And I just think, well, what what will they do when someone really eminent comes along? Like, give me a break, groundbreaking for 20,000 pounds. You know, I mean, I guess the point is simply to say, what what can we see from your research that we haven't been able to see before? That's. I think it's as simple as that. And when we have um, Law and Humanities methodologies, I find the language of making things visible is very helpful um, because it helps you get around a kind of practical, uh, it sounds practical, but it's theoretical really. <laughs> and so, um, Ishil, I think that that, if you're really clear about the fact that you're looking at a particular thing in a particular way and that you're looking at in a way that is novel in relation to that thing. So you're making a methodological innovation by bringing either by probably you won't be inventing a methodology, probably you'll be applying a methodology to an unexpected situation and that application will produce uh, a new form of understanding and that's it. I wouldn't I wouldn't even worry about making the language sound like you're going to change the world and the course of the Earth's trajectory. I would just say it's a, a solid contribution because we can see something that we didn't see before. I think there's something about being confident that that actually is what we're doing that um, helps to to craft that and actually not feeling like we're inadequately trying to meet this issue of being groundbreaking, but no, we actually are doing good work that is actually making a contribution and being confident in that. And that comes across in the in the writing when you do that. Yeah, yeah. And the tonal confidence is so important. You know, when you go into an interview, a job interview, and you can perform a level of calm relaxedness and the panel just relaxes? I don't know if you've had that situation, but you probably had it in the context of teaching a class where if you go in and you're anxious about something and there's something you don't know, you'll direct the entire class to the thing you don't know. Whereas if you go in thinking, I'm really clear in what I want to convey to the students today. And then when they ask you things you don't know, you say, that's not relevant because what we're focusing on today is this. So you have to carry a real sense of confidence in the grant writing Sounds elusive. <laughs> we can aspire to that, I'm sure. Ben, did you want to uh, contribute? Yeah, just quickly. Thank you um, for both of your contributions. And I'm sorry, I was a little late. I've been moving furniture today. Um, 
I'm struck. I was struck by listening to both of you, Sun and Tim, that you know it's these kind of genres in which we're forced to write these kind of horrible neoliberal genres, like the grant application, whether it's for DECRA or the laureate, um, can paradoxically, on your account, tend to make us the best version of ourselves or better versions of ourselves. So I, you know, I. I got so much from listening to you, especially the visibility, you know, making visible or making legible as a way for the crit or the theoretician to sound practical and policy focused without actually having to do. I mean, that's absolutely gold and worth the price of admission. But just in listening to you both, you know, it's like the version of ourselves that that we kind of perform in this context is one that is not defensive and doesn't doesn't jump at tonal variety so much. Um, but also, especially listening to Sandia's comments at at um, just before about positioning yourself as being part of a conversation rather than as being the only crit in the room where everybody else is um where everybody else is wrong and you you alone have the answer to the question I, you know this is all really really good advice for being a, a scholar in our ordinary lives and it strikes me that it's kind of it's perverse that we kind of go through these processes that we're all kind of abhor and are horrified um with 15 percent success rates but that actually it can be going through that that actually um you know conduces to a better ethos perhaps um a more generous less defensive one so that's how I heard you and I read you. And I just wanted to, I'd be interested in hearing if that, how much of that had translated to your non-grant related forms of writing, but also whether there are things that we're missing, you know, what is the, what is the dark side? Have you picked up bad habits from writing grants that have kind of leached into your, um, leached into your um, scholarship? I, you know, I, I should say I have a hundred percent success rate from the ARC, having not sought assent from them, um, neither positive nor negative. Uh, so I'm, you know, the only thing I can kind of analogize it to is when I was kind of writing a uh, my last book proposal, where I was writing the proposal that the kind of pitch at the same time as writing the um, writing the introduction. And I found that the pitch I was kind of performing a really salesman version of myself. Um, and I would often have them open on two screens, and I'd I'd have to kind of check myself and go, no, no, I'm writing the scholarly introduction. I can't be, I can't be suggesting that this is the best thing since sliced bread and vice versa. So I'm, I'm wondering if there's a darker story um, about crossover of genre that you could reflect on, if that question makes sense. Yeah, it does. I, I think writing the, 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 the bits about yourself um was was part of the hardest part of it so talking up about how fantastic your, your research is how fantastic your track record is all these wonderful things that you've done um, um that, that's the bit where my office of research kept sending me stuff back saying you haven't addressed the criteria um can you can you do this better and i think on about the third time they gave me feedback um i i did manage to sit there and go okay this is this is me and all the stuff that i do how can i make that fit the grant and so maybe that's not the negative but it's it's a it's finding a way to to be true to what it is we do and go okay well you know maybe i haven't got all these citations or I haven't got this other stuff but i do you know we do a bunch of stuff with the association work that i do and other things how can we fit that into a narrative about what it what we think it is to be a good scholar and, and, a, and a generous um scholar and, and and that sort of thing um in terms of of then does it flow into other contexts it probably does i'd have to think a little bit more about whether i'm now doing other things less good because of it um, 
I think that the 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 stuff that I've learned that you heard quite rightly, Ben, about presenting, I I think writing grants has taught me to write much much better away from a genre of critique, which is not to say at all not to be a critical scholar, but to but to present my work in a way which doesn't have to knock down the work of others and to be much more straightforward about saying what is the nature of my contribution and how does it relate to what other people do without actually evaluating what other people do. So I can, I will still, it's held me to a task of careful description I'm gen more generous description, and I hope that that has fed into my work more generally. And it's also helped me to um, tell better stories about what I do and to think about communicating what it is that legal scholars do that other scholars don't do. I think I had a very uh, just you know, add another discipline and stir and we're always borrowing from other disciplines, but we don't really add anything. And that didn't, that doesn't really work when you have to explain the nature of your contribution, when you know it's going to be assessed by a multidisciplinary audience. And so I've gotten much better at that. And I've gotten a bazillion times better at receiving criticism. So that process of having grant mentors tear my application to shreds over several years when I absolutely knew that they were on my side was so instructive because you know when you supervise and you and you're and you you say all of the things that are critical about the students work and then they start crying <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but but it's very hard to hear that, right? When you're a junior scholar, I reckon my hide is so much thicker now because just that idea of these these people reading this work are so busy. Do I really want them to spend five sentences softening the blow, or do I want them to just do I am I just grateful that they've read the damn thing? And if they say unclear, too waffly, you know doesn't make sense, incoherent. It's like, okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. It's so, it was so instructive because I knew they were on my side and I did not want them to have to waste time uh, softening the blow every single time. So that was really good. It's probably made me even meaner as a supervisor though. But anyway, that's, that's another problem. But the dark side is exactly what Tim's suggesting, which is the the danger of believing your own publicity about yourself. Like I'm sure I'm a much more pompous ass now than ever I was before. And goodness knows I was one before already. Like the, the idea that, that the university treats you better when you get grants and that your status is raised and so on is terrible. It's very, it's very bad. And it's and not always accurate either, too, right? Like the, the totally the no, no, thing. it's not merit. It's there's no, it's not related to merit, but it's the status marker which has a pernicious effect, um, and so that's bad. And I rely on my friends to give me a good kicking every now and then in case I start to believe my own publicity. <laughs> you are that friend, Ben. <laughs> Just just going back to what your your question was, Ben, um, about the seeping of um 
the or the melding of the genres. It just reminded me of a previous session that we had on writing, how to write well, and the difference between precision and clarity. And um, I remember talking at the time about how I struggled with <clears throat> escaping from the a felt need to be precise, which necessarily makes seems to make, at least for me, my writing very dense and quite critical. And the difference between that and maybe that the grant writing process is instructive on, you know, as you said, Sandhya, telling better stories or careful and generous description um, as a, you know, way of being clear um, and escaping that sort of, I, I think it goes back to the um, question of honesty, <laughs> this sort of mistaken feeling that precision means honesty, absolute intellectual honesty, um, which is actually not called for um, in many circumstances. <laughs> well, I, I think that's right, Kathleen, and the it's it's like the question of what is the task you're engaged in. Are you writing a sort of religious tract or exegesis that's about your soul or are you engaging in an exercise in communication? And if it's the latter, it asks you to focus on the audience or the reader rather than on you. And so the other thing I often do, grant or no grant, is imagine what I'm doing in the mode of teaching. And that asks me to think of communicative clarity rather than truth. You know what I mean? It's it, it's a slightly different task, I think, that you're setting for yourself. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's right. And I think that the um, comparison with teaching is really useful because, um, you know, you are trying to convey something um, reasonably briefly um, and as clearly as possible and to, you know, engage people. It's not about um, precision or lack thereof. Laura, please go ahead. Thank you everyone for this. I really um, learned a lot and appreciate how generous you've been in sharing your own sort of personal approaches and how you go about your work. I really love these types of conversations. Um, and I think I learn a lot from hearing people talk about how they go about the things that they do. Um, if you're not in the space right now that you're going to apply for a grant, but you perhaps will in the next few years, is, are there things looking back just to finish that you think were crucial to the success that people might think about doing now to kind of build up maybe a research narrative about how they're doing their work or sort of certain practical things that you think really led to having an out, a CV or an approach that kind of was recognised then by the ARC? Um, yeah, I mean... One one sort of basic thing is you, you do need to build a build a track record, um, and often I, I sort of say you just you need to do good work. So part of it is just you know continuing to do to do good work, um, and you know being appropriately strategic in terms of where and what you're publishing and that sort of thing. Um, the I mean, the other thing for, for me is that, that I I had been playing around with this idea for quite a while before I actually then wrote it up as a, as a grant. So it's it's thinking about what ideas might work, the work that you want to do that might sort of sit as a project that can be then 
um, you know, put forward as an application at some point in time. Um, and I used um, an internal EOI process as a help to clarify that. Like it was a, you know, you had to do a short version of the application. And I just kind of sat down over a weekend. Um, I think it was um, in part because I'd, I'd misunderstood when the deadline was, um, but, and forced myself to write it as a, okay, this is, if I'm going to do it, this is what it's going to look like. Um, and using that as a as a means of getting into something that looks like it might be a project that can be developed. Yeah, and I'm going to make Tim's uh, high quality substantive answer sound. I'm going to take it in a strategic and pragmatic direction, as I often do, which is to say, do an application now, Laura, and reverse engineer it so that you know what's missing for the next three years because it's always useful to give yourself some lead time rather than when you're ready to apply to suddenly go, oh, shit, there's a big hole in my in my whatever it is. Um, and the second thing I would suggest is if you know you're going to participate in the Australian Research Council grant game, that if you can find a senior scholar to do one with you for track record, that's really useful. But so the way that I would suggest you do it is say to someone, I'll do the work you join me in the application because then their track record uh, helps you get the grant, but you're not making it hard work for them because that's, you know, that's not very attractive as a proposition unless they really, really, really want to help you, but it's also not really tenable. So um, it's very useful to join a, a group with a more senior person and, um, say, okay, what if we do this together and I'll put, I'll do, I'll write the first couple of drafts of the application and do the bibliographical work and everything. And then you help refine it, which is sort of how I got started. Um, and then they turn into real projects. It's not like they're fake, they're fake collaborations. It's just that they might not really want to write a grant application, uh, but they would be happy to join a project. And so I would, I, I think that's extremely useful as a proposition. The other thing I'd suggest um, and something I found really, really useful is I um, asked a couple of colleagues who had had successful DECRAs whether they'd share their application with me and they did. Um, and that was that was incredibly helpful just because you could go, oh, how do they deal with this this criteria? Mm. Like, oh, okay, they, they, they address it in that way. And I sort of could then go, okay, well, how do I address it based on, on that? So, you know, if you can find people who are happy to share, and obviously, you, you know, you'd be careful about how you're doing that, but um, um, that's, a, that's a really useful process just to see what it looks like. And a lot of universities will help you do that by having a, a grant, a research grant library. And so if you're, if you're working within an institution and they have, they can nurture you into grants, then that's really useful to find out. And so that might entail applying for a small grant scheme inside the university so that you that you're on the radar and you can access the supports and so on. Because most universities have some kind of internal small grant scheme for early career researchers. And so it's a good place to cut your teeth. Well, we've reached the end of our hour, but um, I think that it's been really useful and uh, interesting and um, just like to thank everybody um, for joining us and thank Tim and Sandia for sharing your insights. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kathleen. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. See you all next time. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash 
Illa Podcast. That's double I-L-A-H Podcast.